Hello, readers. William H. McRaven is a retired four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy. His service included 37 years as a Navy SEAL and a final assignment as commander of all U.S. Special Operations Forces. After retiring from the Navy, he served as Chancellor of the University of Texas System from 2015 to 2018. He's also the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Make Your Bed, as well as the title we're discussing today, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. William, thank you for the time. How are you today? It's great to be here. I'm doing great. Absolutely. So, uh, sir, this book was fantastic. Had a great time reading it over the last couple of weeks. What was your initial goal in writing sea stories? <laughs> well, originally, uh, my kids came to me, and you know, they, uh, my, my kids look at me as dad, and uh, and they're, of course, they're all adults now. But at one point in time, they said, you know, we we really don't know a whole lot about what you have done in your your time in the Navy, and. Uh, and, and they wanted to have a better understanding of why I was gone all the time and, and what I was doing. So these stories actually started off as a little bit of a, of a narrative to my children on, on what my life in the Navy had been like. So I, I started doing those stories. And when Make Your Bed uh, did well commercially, the uh, publisher came back and said, well, you got anything else? I said, well, I've got some stories I've been writing, and if you're interested in those, we'll, we'll give it a try. So that was the genesis of the book. So what are sea stories for someone who hasn't heard that concept before? Yeah, well, and this may be a little bit different. A lot of times the term sea stories in the military has a little bit of a you know, fairy tale sort of connotation, uh, you know, highly embellished stories about sailors at sea and uh, sea monsters and these sort of things. What I'd offer on these is these stories are really stories told from my point of view. So they're what I saw, what I felt, what I believed, uh, and I've tried to keep the, the embellishment to a, to a very small amount. Um, but this book really is, it's a series of stories. So it's not your classic memoir, and I hope what people take away from the book is, is not that this is the story of Bill McRaven, but more it's the story of all the great men and women I had the opportunity to work with over my 37 years in the military, the great soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that, that sacrificed so much. These are really their stories, but kind of seen through my eyes. When did you first learn about the concept of sea stories or this notion of Navy guys sitting around and just regaling tales with one another? Oh, this is probably one of the first things you, you learn when you, you come into the Navy. And, and, of course, I went through the Naval ROTC program here at the University of Texas at Austin. And I, I think probably in my very first semester, uh, you were learning from some of the, the old salts, the chief petty officers and the the senior officers they were they were telling sea stories and again they were there were stories of their their times in the western pacific or their times in the mediterranean or south america and again while not highly embellished they were great stories of uh, of men and women at sea you know doing uh, brave and, uh, and heroic things one of the first stories that you tell from your early life is something called operation volcano <laughs> what was operation volcano and how did that lead to your first and last lie that you ever told your dad. Yeah, so the Operation Volcano uh, was the code name we used as kids for this mission we were going to go on. And, and again, this is uh, the setting here is uh, 1966, I believe. Uh, my father was stationed at Lackland Air Force Base, more specifically Medina Air Force Base, uh, down in San Antonio. And again, this was the 60s. This was the time of James Bond and you know the Man from Uncle and I Spy. And so, as kids, uh, me and a couple of buddies decided what a great idea it would be to break into the ammunition storage oh depot, gosh. which was uh, uh, very close to the base housing area there in Medina. And so, we devised this plan, codename Operation Volcano, because the, the ammo depots looked like these kind of small volcanoes. They were called gravel girdies. So, uh, so we made our way from base housing through the woods and, uh, and to this uh, fence line. And there were these kind of three consecutive fences. And uh, I was the kind of the first guy over the fence. Each one of us, as I tell in the story, was kind of carrying our own weapons. So, you know, one guy had a, a Red Ryder BB gun. I think the other one had a, a Davy Crockett uh, old, old Betsy, uh, you know, long rifle. And I had a Roy Rogers kind of pearl-handled cap gun. Well, as I make my way over the first fence, uh, everything's looking okay. I make my way over the second fence. About that point in time, all hell breaks loose. Uh, the military police come running. Well, I scamper back over the second fence, get to the first fence, start to make my way up over that. But as I do, I drop my Roy Rogers pistol. But I manage to get on the other side of the fence, and me and my buddies scamper back into the woods and, and kind of get back uh, to the base housing area. 
and it looks like everything has calmed down. Yeah, you guys actually evade we do. the military. <laughs> we, we do evade the police in the woods. They're on the other side of the fence line, thank goodness. Um, but I get home, and uh, and everything seems to have quieted down. So that was a Saturday, I think. And so Sunday happens, and nothing, and Monday happens. Well, Monday evening, my father comes home from work, and he was a colonel there at the Air Force Base. And he calls me into the living room, and he says, uh, Bill, I, I got word that some kids tried to break into the ammunition storage depot. And he looked at me and he said, do you know anything about that? And as I say in the book, it's the first and last time I ever lied to my father. And I looked him in the eye and said, uh, no, sir, I, I don't. And he said, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, he and my mom hugged me and uh, I went and took a bath, got in bed. And as I was getting in bed and pulling the covers up, I looked on my nightstand and there was my Roy Rogers uh, <laughs> pearl handle cap gun. <laughs> And and uh, my my father never, in the course of the rest of his life, never mentioned that episode to me again. Wow! And I think the the brilliance of that parenting was that I have carried that burden since I was ten years old. Um, but I remember the feeling I had lying to my father, and uh, and I think he understood that uh, if you lie to somebody sooner or later, you're gonna you're gonna pay the price. And the and the Roy Rogers cap gun was there to remind me that uh, it's never a good thing to lie. Your dad was obviously an important figure in your life. There's somebody else that you mentioned early on in this book who also had a major impact. Who is Jerry Turnbow, and how did he impact your life? Yeah, so Coach Turnbow, Coach Jerry Turnbow, was uh, a high school football coach and a part-time track coach at Roosevelt High School. And, uh, and I mainly rem- remembered him as the assistant uh, football coach. And, of course, back then, I mean, I was a, a young kid. You know, football coaches were, were kind of kings. I mean, you know, they were, they were important people, certainly in the state of Texas. <laughs> and, uh, but, frankly, I didn't think uh, Coach Turnbow even knew who I was. I had been a, a scrub on the football team, and then I went off to run track. Well, my senior year uh, in high school, I was trying to break the mile record uh, in, in track. And uh, the second to the last race I'd run, frankly, was not very good. And I was coming down to my last race – and it was going to be my last race in high school, last opportunity to break the mile record. And the night before the race, uh, I got a phone call. And I remember my dad called me and said, hey, the, the coach is on the phone for you. And I thought that was strange because I just left track practice and the coaches hadn't said anything. Well, I pick up the phone and it's Coach Jerry Turnbow. And again, I didn't even think Coach Turnbow knew who I was. And he was this, again, kind of very important figure in the, the life of, uh, of Roosevelt High School. But Again, I was surprised he knew who I was. And so he calls and he says, well, Bill, I, I understand you're, you're, you're running your last race tomorrow, trying to break the mile record. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, look, Bill, you can do this. You can break the record. You just run hard. You just run as hard as you can, and I know you can do this. It was not a long phone call, but it inspired me so much that the next day I went out and broke the record. And as I tell in the, the book, look, nobody cared about that mile record but me. And in fact, the next year it was broken by a, by a kid that was a lot faster than I was. But for me, it made a difference. For me, it convinced me that if I could break the mile record, I could go on and do other things in life. I could become a Navy SEAL. So when you write your life story and you begin to look back at these events that really kind of fundamentally change your life, I look back on that phone call from Coach Turnbow and the fact that he inspired me that allowed me to break that school record made me realize I could go on to be a Navy SEAL. And by being a Navy SEAL, it changed the entire trajectory of my life. One phone call. So, you know, you won't always be able to go on a, a raid to get bin Laden or, or capture Saddam Hussein or rescue Captain Phillips. But you will always be able to make a phone call to a young you know, man or woman and, and inspire them to do something else. And, uh, and that's what Coach Turnbow did for me. Those epiphanous moments can happen really anywhere in life. It can be at a young age. It can be at an older Absolutely. age. But the hope is, is that you get to experience something that does help to change the trajectory of wherever it is that your life is headed. Exactly right. And you'll have a lot of opportunities to do that. Speaking of your life as a Navy SEAL, the chapter Only Easy Day Was Yesterday details what you and your fellow Navy SEAL hopefuls went through during Hell Week, a brutal series of survival tests that bludgeoned you physically, mentally, emotionally, and psychologically. What was the most difficult part of that week for you? Yeah, so Hell Week, uh, basic SEAL training is about six months long, and it's broken up into three phases. And the first phase of training is probably the physically most demanding. And to your point, uh, it's 10 weeks long, but on about the eighth or ninth week, I forget, 
we have Hell Week. And Hell Week is essentially six days of no sleep, and you are constantly being kept cold, wet, and miserable. You're being put in the ocean, in the bay. Uh, you're, you're doing push-ups and sit-ups and, and pull-ups. And this is, again, this is to find out who really wants to be a Navy SEAL. But one particular day of Hell Week, if, if Hell Week itself wasn't bad enough, uh, the hardest day is really what I, th- I think down at the mud flats. So when I went through, the mud flats were this area where the water from Tijuana and the water from San Diego kind of merged and created this uh, slough, if you will, hmm. of mud. It was a, a mud slough, and, and I would say, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, probably, you know, three or 400 meters uh, square. Um, and in the middle, it was probably about three or four feet deep. Well, you would get down there on Wednesday, and again, you haven't slept for three or four days, and in the mud, you're doing mud wrestling and mud fights and uh, mud relays, and the mud is cold, and it's grabbing you, and it's exhausting you, and they keep you in the mud a long time during that night. And, you know, one particular incident that I talk about is the fact that, you know, we had committed some egregious violation of the rules. We were all in the mud, and, and you could tell a bunch of kids were about to quit, and then one guy started singing. And the instructors got real mad at him and started yelling at him to stop singing. And then another guy started singing and another and the instructors now are encircling the mud flats and they got bullhorns out and they're screaming at us to stop singing, but the, but the singing persisted. And, and the point of the story was that that one young man uh, kind of gave us all hope. If he could sing when he was literally up to his neck in mud, <laughs> then, then we could probably make it through the day. But those, uh, I mean, that was one of a, you know, a, a lot of stories that you – uh, and a lot of challenges that you encounter going through SEAL training. Um, and, of course, my last, second to last day in SEAL training, I was on a helicopter that went down in the water. Uh, and I remember as we all managed to get out of that helicopter, one of the instructors uh, came up to me and said, well, I hope this isn't any indication of how the rest of your career is going to go. <laughs> but, in fact, it was. Uh, there were a lot of challenges in the course of the next 37 years. Well, we're going to get into some of those challenges in just a second, but – why was that experience, the Navy SEAL training and the specific Hell Week, why was that so valuable throughout the rest of your career and your life? Yeah, I think what it does for you is it, it kind of sets the, the standard of pain and anguish and, and, and the miserableness standard. So for the rest of your career, you know, when I was cold, wet, and miserable, I'd ask myself, am I as cold and wet and miserable as I was during Hell Week? And if the answer was no, then you could continue to press on. So whether you were in the Hindu Kush you know, freezing or whether you were in the, the hot deserts of Iraq or whether you were someplace on a ship out at night, uh, you always kind of baselined everything against Hell Week. And, uh, and I, I can't think of a time in the course of my career when things were as miserable in terms of being cold and, and wet and exhausted as I was during Hell Week. Admiral, you compare being a commanding officer to being a football coach. How so? Well, I think anytime you have a team, you have to understand you know, how to organize a team, how to lead the team, uh, what are important responsibilities for you know, a, a coach or a, or a captain on a team. And the SEAL teams are an awful lot like a football team. Uh, you know, we've got uh, really a SEAL platoon is about 14 guys, could be as high as 21 guys. Uh, you've got a locker room. I mean, we have practice, we do drills, we have playbooks, all the sorts of things uh, that you see, again, in, in a football team. And, and you realize also that being part of a team, being part of a really good team, you have to set high standards. You have to give the, the team, your teammates the resources to do the job, and you have to hold them accountable if they're not doing their job. And I think these are the basics of, uh, of leadership and teamwork anywhere. Chapter 9 is titled Second Chances, and it details an event that happened February 1995 in Morro Bay, California. You were observing a training operation, and it nearly cost you your life. What happened? So, yeah, Second Chances, uh, the important part about Second Chances is the story starts off with, as I'm the commanding officer of SEAL Team 3, and I'm having to hold a young officer accountable. Uh, The officer had gotten a DUI, driving under the influence, and really, for the most part, that can kill an officer's career. Um, and, and I found him guilty because the, the facts uh, showed that he had, in fact, uh, had a DUI. But you know, fast forward a little bit in the story, and now, to your point, I'm in Morro Bay. That's in Central California. And I'm observing a SEAL platoon that's getting ready to deploy overseas doing their final exercise. But as we are kind of preparing, off to the side, there is what's referred to as the special boat unit. While they were not part of my team, they were part of this exercise— and these two rigid hull inflatable boats, ribs, 33-foot ribs, one of them appeared to be you know, preparing to go out through the surf zone. 
and there had been a storm coming in and the surf was very high. And I was looking at these waves coming in. They were 20 or 30 feet high, and this really didn't look particularly safe. Uh, so I went over in a Zodiac, kind of got on board the rigid inflatable boat, asked the young lieutenant, hey, what are you up to here? He said, hey, sir, we're, we're, we're trained to do this. We're going to go out uh, through the surf. So to make a long story short, I decided to get on the boat and, um, and go out with him. Well, that didn't turn out so well. At one point in time, uh, as we were going up against a 40-foot wave, a larger wave came in. Mm. It dumped the boat, and, uh, and now oh, I am entangled in the, the boat, and we this thing we call shot line, a little nylon line. And as I tell in the story, so now I'm in 50-degree you know, water. I don't have a, a wetsuit on or a dry suit on. I'm really cold. I'm stuck underneath this boat uh, that is submerged underwater. I am entangled in this shot line, as we refer to it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is how it ends. I mean, th this, this is it. Uh, I've got this rope is wrapped around my neck as the boat is being pulled by the surf. The noose around my neck is tightening. I'm, I'm losing air. Um, and I remember saying to myself, well, I'll never see my wife and three kids again. And, um, and then, and I use the term, I think, correctly, then miraculously, I'm loose. I'm, I am just all of a sudden completely unentangled, and I'm about 30 feet underwater. I, I swim to the surface, but I'm still caught in the next series of waves that are coming. Fortunately, uh, a couple of SEALs who were kind of watching this uh, thing unfold, they were in a Zodiac. They came hauling out into this high surf in a Zodiac, a very small boat. Uh, at great risk to their own lives, and pulled me out of the water right before the next very large wave hit. Uh, again, risking their lives uh, to to save mine. Uh, a couple of about a, I guess it was about a year later. Actually, uh, I was able to pin the Navy Marine Corps Medal, which is a life saving medal. It's the highest medal for valor in peacetime uh, on not only these two uh, young seals, but there were another two that saved another kid. Um, but the point of the story, and I, I tried to have a point to all these stories, mm -hmm. was I had a second chance, a uh, second chance at life, a second chance at my career, because guys kind of helped me through this rough time. And so a couple of years later, I was on the promotion board for this officer who I had found guilty. And, uh, and he had done all the right things after being found guilty. He'd been a stand-up officer. He came before the promotion board. We promoted him to lieutenant commander. He subsequently went on to have a, a very good SEAL career and saved a lot of lives in Iraq. Gave other people second chances. Wow. So it's a long story about second chances. I'm fascinated by the concept of second chances because second chances involve failure. Failure is such an important element for success, and successful people generally fail a lot learning lessons along the way that ultimately make them stronger as people. You've achieved a lot of success in your life. What is your greatest failure, and what was the lesson that you learned from that? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I've, I've had a lot of failures. And to your point, um, you know, I, I hope at the end of the day that my successes uh, outweigh my failures. But in combat, you, you make mistakes. Uh, you know, the enemy gets a vote. Uh, I've failed on hostage rescues. I've failed on raids. I've failed on you know uh, strikes, airstrikes. Um, but but as I tell people, nothing steals you for combat quite like failure. You need to learn how to deal with failure. You need to learn you know to hopefully not make the same mistake twice. Uh, you can't always beat yourself up when you do fail. Uh, and as a good leader, you have to be prepared to make the next tough decision. Because if you're not prepared to make the next tough decision then frankly, more lives will be at risk. Uh, you know, nobody wants a leader that all of a sudden, because they have made a mistake, is now weak need or afraid to make the next tough decision. So you know, again, in the course of my, uh, my career, I've had a lot of stumbles, um, but, but I, I hope in the long run, uh, you know, my, my work has been worthwhile. You discuss a second near-death experience in Chapter 10. What happened to you around San Diego in 2001? In 2001, I was, uh, I was the Commodore, so I was the senior SEAL uh, on the West Coast. I had all the SEAL teams on the West Coast, um, and I was going out for a routine parachute jump. We had flown in a, a C-130, a combat aircraft, uh, out of a, a nearby air base, flown up to about 13,000 feet, and the idea was you jump out from 13,000 feet, you fall to about 5,500 feet, you wave off, as we say, to make sure everybody's out of your way, you pull your ripcord, 
the pilot chute comes out, it pulls out a main chute, you get a main chute, and then you, you drift beautifully you know, down to earth. Well, this particular day, beautiful day in San Diego, um, you know, not, not a cloud in the sky, you can see the Pacific Ocean, you can see Mexico. Uh, I jump out, I get stable, I'm falling, and I see a couple of guys off to my left and a guy off to my right, and I'm watching the guy off to my right, and he appears to be drifting underneath me. Uh, but as I'm watching him, he slowly kind of moves off back to the right and everything looks good. And then all of a sudden I realize the guy to my left has swung underneath me or I have swung over the top of him. And in that very instant, he is pulling his ripcord. So in relative terms, I'm moving at 120 miles an hour down and he is all stopped. Uh, I can't move away from it fast enough. Uh, his parachute opens up. I hit the parachute. I'm assuming it's much like hitting an airbag. I hit it. It stuns me and I start to tumble out of control. Uh, and candidly, what I should have done is I should have gotten stable again and checked my altimeter and pulled my ripcord. But because I was a little bit dazed and, and confused, the first thing I did was reach for my ripcord. So I pulled my ripcord, and because I was in kind of a head-down, tumbling attitude, the pilot chute came out, wrapped around one leg, and the riser, another part of the parachute, wrapped around another leg. Uh, so now I'm entangled in my parachute, uh, you know, falling towards the earth, thinking to myself, yeah, this doesn't look too good. Yeah. Well, the good news is the parachute opened. The bad news is when a parachute opens, it blossoms. And it pulled one leg one way, one leg the other way, and it, it kind of snapped my pelvis uh, a couple inches apart, uh, pulled my muscles out of my stomach and my legs, uh, fractured my back, and I ended up landing about uh, two miles from the drop zone. And once again, the point of this story really is about all the folks it took to kind of get me back on my feet. My wife became my nurse. Uh, my boss, uh, the admiral who I reported to, took care of me from the Navy standpoint. My colleagues came by. Friends came by. You know, kept my morale up, helped me rehab. And, and you realize that I don't care if you are the biggest, strongest, toughest, smartest SEAL around uh, or anybody else. You, know, you need friends. You need colleagues uh, to help you get through life. And this was just a reminder of that. How many near-death experiences have you been through in your life? <laughs> yeah, a lot. Uh, but, you know, most of them, they happen so fast. Uh, and, you know, again, you're parachuting, you're using explosives, uh, you're getting shot at or mortared or, uh, you know, an airplane almost crashes. I mean, these are the sort of things that are, I hate to say, but kind of, you know, natural events that occur in the course of a 37-year career when you're doing high-risk things uh, like being in special operations. But again, most of them happen and everything turns out okay, and you just go, okay, miss that one, and then, and then you press on. Because again, you can't be afraid of every near-death experience. Some of them every once in a while catch up to you, like the parachute accident, and the boating accident, and the uh, you know, helicopter accident, and a couple of others. But, uh, but you, know, you, you can't be afraid of that, or you won't be able to continue on. Is the reflective aftermath of these scary moment, moments generally the same, or does do you become conditioned to treat them differently after you go through something no, like I that? No, I think you become conditioned to uh, to treat them all the same, which is you, know, you kind of partition them off in your brain. You say, okay, I'm alive, uh, I'm okay, or maybe I'm banged up, but I'm going to be okay. And then you just move that aside because you can't dwell on that day in and day out. You can't say... Well, the next time I go parachute, this could happen. In fact, uh, as soon as I was able again, I got back up in a plane and started jumping again. You kind of have to, quote unquote, get back on the horse. And uh, whether it's a helicopter ride or a parachute or a boat, um, you know, you, you can't let that uh, dissuade you or, or, or take you off your task of doing the right job and doing the job correctly. Um, or, like I said, you're not going to be a good leader if you're afraid to, to face your fears. Why are you the guy that people should think every time they have to take off their shoes and remove their computer from a bag uh, at you airport had to bring security? That up, huh? <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, a little bit of uh, levity in a in a tough situation. But when I was stationed at the White House uh, from 2001 to 2003, uh, one day I get called down to the Situation Room, and uh, and if you recall, there was uh, who we referred to as a shoe bomber, Richard Reed. And so the information was coming into the White House as this whole thing was unfolding that uh, they had found this guy named Richard Reed who had this bomb in his shoe. And I got the initial schematics on it. Um, and, and being a demolition guy, I kind of looked at it initially and thought, eh, th this would never have worked. So I called a friend of mine who was an explosives uh, expert, and he said, oh, no, this absolutely could have worked. Well, my boss, who was a retired four-star general, was up in Air Force One with uh, President Bush at the time. 
And, uh, of course, you know, looking back on this, we didn't know, and this is not too long after 9-11, we didn't know, was Richard Reed one of many? Were there more shoe bombers coming uh, to attack the United States? Uh, what else was going on out there? What other means could they use, Al-Qaeda use, to blow up airplanes? So I called up my boss, and I made the recommendation, and I'm, <laughs> I, I did not make the ultimate decision, as I'm quick to point out in there. I'm sure the president of the United States or the director of Homeland Security or a committee or somebody made the decision. But I might have got the ball rolling when I told my boss, look, we probably need to have people's shoes checked and also check their laptops. Uh, so I, I have only myself to blame for having to take off my shoes. <laughs> but again, as I'm quick to point out, I am not the guy that made the final decision. It's a uh, very understandable recommendation <laughs> in the moment, but uh, I was amused by that one and you kind of having fun with yourself in that one and certainly wanted to bring it up right here. Uh, slightly more serious question, Admiral. What does serving mean to you? We hear all the time yeah. about uh, people who are in the military, serving in the military, serving this country. What does this idea of serving mean to you? Yeah, thanks. You know, it really is about recognizing that there's something you know bigger out there than you are. And when we hear this this kind of phrase, you know, doing something that is that is bigger, that is more important than you as an individual, uh, you know, when we think about what America stands for, uh, and and none of us in the military are naive enough to to believe that we have always done everything right, and every person that's ever served has been, uh, you know, a choir boy or girl. I mean, we we do understand the realities of both politics and, and national strategy, and we stumble around sometimes. But underneath all of that are these foundations of values, the things that we believe in. All of us raise our hand and say we support and defend the Constitution of the United States and all that comes with that Constitution, all the values that are part of us being a nation of laws, this belief in you know, our freedom of speech, this belief in equality, this belief in, in universal rights. I mean, these are the things that differentiate us from a China or a Russia or a Saudi Arabia or an Iran. Uh, you know, this is what makes us who we are. And, and at the end of the day, the men and women serve. They serve to be alongside their comrades. They serve to do hopefully what they believe is the right thing for America to protect our American citizens. That's, that's really why you serve. That's a fantastic answer, sir. And in Chapter 12, you write about one of your great accomplishments, the capture of Saddam Hussein. What was your role in his capture and in the aftermath? Yeah, well, the guys that actually captured him uh, were some great Army Special Operations uh, troops that worked for me. Uh, But uh, as I point out in the book, once he was captured, he was brought back to, uh, to my command post, and I spent kind of the next 30 days checking on him every day and, uh, and, and watching how you know, S- Saddam had to deal with his capture. Uh, and the, I think the point I raise in that particular chapter is the fact that you know, when we captured Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, initially he was pompous, he was arrogant. Uh, as far as he was concerned, he was still the president of Iraq. But as the days went on, uh, he really kind of became nothing more than a pathetic old man. And I'm quick to point out, if you contrast that with a Nelson Mandela, who spent almost 30 years incarcerated, and because Nelson Mandela had this strength of character, because Nelson Mandela was this man of great integrity, um, he was able to withstand the, you know, the 30 years of incarceration and come out as strong, if not stronger. Uh, you know, when you oppose that to Saddam Hussein, who was rotten to the core, who was evil, who was a man of no character and no integrity, and you see that he really crumbled within a matter of days or weeks, uh, I think it really does kind of contrast the two personalities. Um, but uh, and it was certainly interesting watching uh, how, this, how this man who had been the butcher of Baghdad and, and had been responsible for the death of tens of thousands of Kurds and, and his own folks uh, really was you know, evil personified. You do write about the change in his personality being so dramatic of him being denied this idea of power, whether it is controlling an entire country or controlling a conversation. And you saw him on a daily basis for the 30 days that he was in your capture. Did your opinion or maybe your feelings change regarding facing a guy each and every day over that span, uh, a guy who was looked at uh, as public enemy number one here in this country for so long? No, because it really was apparent to me on day one when we captured him 
uh, that, frankly, without his palaces, without his generals, without his handmaidens, I mean, this guy was not 10 feet tall. I mean, he was just an evil, evil man. Uh, but what empowered that evil were all the trappings around him. And without those trappings, you know, and, and I've spent uh, a lot of time around evil people, uh, you know, when you, when you get them isolated all on their own, uh, they, they tend to crumble pretty quickly. And frankly, he was no different. Hmm, that's interesting. And uh, you also had an order to your men that nobody was to have a conversation with him. You ended up having one singular conversation with him. What did that involve? And uh, why did you decide to do that? So unbeknownst to Saddam, we were preparing to transfer him to the military police. So we, we, were, we the special operations forces, were holding him for 30 days. Then I was going to transfer him to the military police, who would be responsible for keeping him incarcerated as the Iraqis went through their judicial, as he went through their judicial system. But he didn't know it, but I knew we were about to transfer him. And of course, at this point in time, again, what he was unaware of was the insurgency was building in Iraq. Uh, the, uh, while the main battle was over, now the rise of kind of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and a lot of the former Ba'athist was occurring. So not having – I made sure nobody spoke to him from my unit uh, for uh, 30 days because, again, I, I didn't want to kind of empower him to sure. have the narrative talking to a young soldier or, an, or a translator or something. But my last day I went in, of course, he'd seen me every day. And every day he had tried to engage me in conversation. And every day I had told him with kind of hand motions, no, you, you sit down. I, I'll be ready to talk to you when I'm ready to talk to you. So this last day, uh, we, myself and a translator had kind of, you know, uh, built a script, if you will. And I figured it was a, you know, it, it was a roll of the dice. Uh, but I came in, had him sit down, and I said, look, um, you know, you really have a choice here. Uh, we're still in this kind of fight with the Iraqis. And I, I asked him if he would take the opportunity to send a message to his people to say, lay down your arms really for the good of Iraq, so we can get back to rebuilding Iraq and making it a great country again. I knew what his answer would be, but I, I felt there wasn't any harm in trying. And, uh, and so I kind of posed this to him, look, you have the opportunity to, to you know, you're going to hang. And I think he knew that that, that was probably inevitable. Um, but he had the opportunity to do something good here, uh, to keep his people from being killed. And he, and he chose not to do that. And, uh, and I remember my last words were in, with him were, well, then you'll never see me again. And I think, and I, I noticed when I said that to him, it was like, oh, I didn't realize that. Um, again, he had no idea what was coming. So that was the last I oh, saw his, him. his expression changed when he, he said oh, that. Oh, absolutely. His expression changed because we had kept him, you know, fairly comfortable. I mean, he was in a, again, he was not in a classic cell. He was in a room and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we fed him, you know, three meals a day and, uh, yeah, he was pretty well taken care of. But then all of a sudden, I think he realized that he was going somewhere else that probably would not have been uh, as, for lack of a better word, comfortable as where he was there. Uh, and he didn't know what his fate was going to be. But uh, but when he knew he was leaving uh, leaving my unit, uh, I think the, I know there was a lot of fear in his eyes. I guess it shouldn't be surprising to learn that a megalomaniac, yeah. which is a word that you call him in the book, that he would react that way to you giving him an opportunity to actually go out on a positive note right. versus all the negative that he created throughout his life. That had to have felt okay wiping the smile off of his face with the last thing that you said to him, right? <laughs> well, I didn't didn't think of it in those terms. I just, as I reflect back on the conversation, uh, I just, you know, I remembered when I told him that he wasn't going to see me anymore, the look on his face, uh, I don't know if it was satisfying, uh, but it was memorable. Okay. You were also in charge of rescuing, I feel like you're like the and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, you're like a Forrest Gump for the military. You have been involved with so many major things that have happened in this country's history in the last 30-plus years now, and that includes things that have been turned into movies, such as you being in charge of rescuing Captain Richard Phillips after he had been kidnapped by Somali pirates, which you describe in Chapter 14. Did you actually see the movie adaptation? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah. I don't normally watch a lot of these movies, but I did take the opportunity to see that one. What is something the filmmakers got right, and what is something that they got very wrong? Yeah, I think the uh, you know, my sense is the... the uh, um, the relationship between the pirates and, and Richard Phillips, uh, as played by Tom Hanks, I think they captured that very nicely. Hmm. In fact, I remember when 
the scene when the Somali pirate comes on the bridge to face Captain Phillips. I have seen a lot of Somali pirates. They look an awful lot like the actor that was portraying uh, uh, that that gentleman at the time. Uh, you know, they uh, there were a couple things they got wrong uh, at one point in time as we're watching the movie. Uh, Phillips jumps off the lifeboat. About that time, the seals are parachuting into the water in, in terms of the movie timeline. And, uh, and my wife said, why didn't you all do something? And I, I had to explain to her, one, he was in the water all of about 15 seconds. And two, we weren't parachuting in the water right at that time. And so some of those things were wrong. What, uh, the other thing they got right, which I appreciated, was uh, at the end of the movie, of course, the, the seals on the, on the back of the Bainbridge take, uh, take these sniper shots. Uh, to, to get Phillips. And it was an incredibly, uh, or to kill the pirates and to rescue Phillips. And it was an incredibly challenging shot. I mean, you're thinking about a small boat through the portals, uh, simultaneous shots. Um, but uh, it was not, you know, 100 yards away either. Uh, mm. Still a very, very challenging shot. So I think the, the technical aspect of kind of where the lifeboat was, where the snipers were, how all that unfolded, uh, you know, pretty much correctly captured, uh, you know, what I saw from my perch, again, recognizing I was observing this from Afghanistan. This is the nature of uh, the uh, kind of command and control systems we have today is I had uh, drones overhead and I had cameras from the, uh, from the ships that were focused on the lifeboat. Uh, and while I couldn't see the snipers taking the shots, I obviously was aware of all this happening uh, through, through radio traffic and those sort of things. But the other thing people should take away from this is, the guys on the scene, so the SEALs and the great uh, sailors that were supporting the operation, uh, Captain Scott Moore, who was the senior SEAL uh, on uh, on scene, you know, he ensured that his guys had the right latitude to make the right decisions at the right time. And always as a leader, you have to trust the men or women that are working for you. And and I'm often asked, you know, how did you, how'd you trust these guys to make the right call? Because I knew who these guys were. I mean, I knew the caliber of of decision makers, the caliber of the snipers. I knew that the young lieutenant commander and the kids that were on the Bainbridge were going to make the right decision. Uh, they didn't need me to tell them when to pull that trigger. They, they knew what they were doing. Who is Brendan Morocco and how did meeting him affect you? Yeah, Brendan Morocco, I tell the story when I was, uh, the, uh, when I was the, the uh, commander of U.S. Special Operations Command uh, down in Tampa, Florida. I would go up uh, routinely uh, up to D.C. to Walter Reed and, and to Bethesda to meet with our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines that have been wounded. And, uh, and at one point in time, uh, I went up and I had an opportunity to meet with a couple of my guys at uh, normally at Walter Reed, which was the Army Hospital at the time uh, there in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, it was where we sent our amputees. So the guys that had legs blown off or arms blown off or, or pretty severely damaged from blast wounds. And that day I had talked to a, a couple of my guys and I knew how to talk to my guys. I mean, you know, my, I, I knew what unit they were from. You know, in some cases I knew them personally. Uh, you, you knew how to harass them a little bit. You know, you could have a, a good conversation. But as I was up there, uh, the sergeant major, the senior enlisted guy who was escorting me around, said, hey, sir, there's a, another young fellow here. He's not a special operations guy. He's with the 25th Infantry Division. Uh, he was over in Iraq. And the vehicle he was in was hit by an explosively formed projectile, essentially a rocket, that went into the vehicle, killed everybody in the vehicle, and left him as a quadruple amputee. Oh, my gosh. And the sergeant major said, you know, would you mind talking to him? I said, absolutely not. I'd, I'd love to go talk to the young soldier. So we were on the second floor of, of Walter Reed in the, the rehab center, and I remember seeing uh, this young soldier whose name was Brennan Morocco. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I see him leaning up against the rail. And of course, you know, he's only a couple feet tall because he's got no legs. Uh, so I go over to talk to him and, uh, and I just, I didn't know what to say. I mean, you know, I, it, I stumbled with my words, which was, uh, unusual. I, I had been in this situation a number of times before, but here he was this young man who lost you know, both his legs and, uh, one arm, I think completely gone, another one partially gone. And, uh, and he must have seen something in my eyes. He must have seen some sort of pity or something. And I remember he looked me in the eye and he said, Sir, I'm 24 years old. I'm going to be just fine. And I never forgot that. Hmm. Uh, and, and I tell folks, look, whenever you're having a bad day, you think about Brendan Morocco, who's, uh, you know, who lost you know, two legs and two, two arms. And at the young age of 24, 
and who realized that if he just kept at it, he was going to be just fine. And in fact, he, he was just fine. He is. He's a motivational speaker today. They did two arm graphs on him. Um, and, and what Brendan doesn't realize, because I, I never talked to him again, um, but he inspired me. And my job was to command 70,000 men and women who affected the lives of another several hundred thousand soldiers across the nation. Um, so his ability to inspire me and my, you know, my effect on other folks, uh, because one young man was just courageous and, uh, and inspiring enough uh, to, you know, to inspire you know, everybody around him, I think. Incredible part of the book. It's one that actually caused me to well up a little bit. And for you as somebody who has met and spoken with so many different men and women who have sacrificed themselves for the good of this country, the good of the job, whatever the branch of the military is, is there a commonality among these people that you've witnessed over time? Yeah, uh, the commonality. Every time I would meet somebody in the combat hospital, so guys guys or gals coming right off the battlefield, severely injured, or I would meet them at the intermediate spot at, at Landstuhl, Germany, where we would send the guys. So from Iraq or Afghanistan, we would medevac them to Landstuhl. They would get stabilized in Landstuhl. And then from Landstuhl, generally to uh, Walter Reed, Bethesda, or Fort Sam Houston right down the road. The, the one common theme, every single time I talked to somebody, they said, sir, I want to get back to my unit. I want to continue wow. to serve. Whether they were severely you know, blast injured, lost arms or legs, no matter what it was, they were always wanting to get back to their unit to be with their comrades. Man, if you can't be inspired by that, nothing can inspire you. And, uh, and I, nobody ever felt sorry for themselves. I mean, it was just remarkable. Hmm. Uh, and I think it speaks volumes to this generation. As I've told folks, I am the biggest fan of the millennials and the, the, the Gen Z folks that you'll ever meet. Uh, and when I hear this narrative that you know, somehow they are these uh, you know, entitled, soft uh, you know, snowflakes, hmm. I'm quick to point out, well, then you've never seen them in a firefight in Afghanistan or during my time here as the chancellor of the University of Texas I watched the young men and women going to school in, in El Paso and the Rio Grande Valley and Permian Basin and Tyler and, and UT Austin and elsewhere around the, the state that are doing things to make a better life for themselves and, and eventually their families. Uh, this is a great generation. And you know, whenever we worry about the future of the country, all you got to do is go, go meet one of these uh, great young men and women and, and it'll, uh, it'll inspire you and make you realize that the country's in, in great hands and we're going to be just fine. Very well said there, sir. In 2011, early 2011, some intel led you and other high-ranking officials to believe that you knew the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden. How delicate was the process of determining the best way to get to him? Yeah, so in, uh, of course, the CIA had been looking at this uh, for several months before I was brought in. And eventually in uh, in January of 2011, I was asked to come to Langley to CIA headquarters to talk to the deputy director of CIA, Michael Morell, uh, and he kind of gave me a, a peek inside the intel intelligence that they had. Uh, you know, when you when you look back on this, and when I think the the stories, although they've many of them have been written, but more will be written in the future. Uh, I mean, this will be one of the greatest operations in the history of the CIA, as it should be. Just remarkable intelligence work. But when we started. Uh, and in fact, all the way until the mission ran, we just weren't sure whether it was bin Laden. And, uh, and every time I would meet with the president, I had six or seven meetings with the president starting at the end of January or early February through April. Uh, the president would ask uh, Leon Panetta, who was the director of the CIA, you know, do we know for certain that it's bin Laden? And Panetta you know, was very positive. He certainly believed it was bin Laden, but, uh, but we never could uh, say categorically that it was. So we had a number of different options. We had a couple of bombing options. Then, of course, we had the, the SEAL raid option. Um, and, and as I've told folks, uh, irrespective of what side of the political aisle you're on, uh, you would have been very pleased with the president and his national security team and how they handled uh, the bin Laden raid. Again, it was a very small group of folks, uh, but there was never any rancor. Uh, there was you know, never any finger pointing, never any nothing personal. It was about doing what was right for the nation. When I left, uh, my final meeting with the president was at the end of April, and the president still hadn't made the decision, but I had to get to Afghanistan. I was going to command the mission from Afghanistan, and I had told the president that, uh, you know, if he made the decision to go, 
I'd be there. The boys would be ready to go. And if not, I had to go back to Afghanistan anyway, and we had bad guys to chase. Um, so I get to uh, Afghanistan on a Friday. The last meeting with the president was on Wednesday. I get to Afghanistan on a Friday, the last day of April, I think, and uh, I get a call from Leon Panetta, and he says, uh, Bill, the president's made the decision to go. And I thought, wow. I mean, that is an incredibly gutsy decision in light of the fact that really at best it was 50-50, uh, that it was bin Laden. And you think about, you know, you're about to send an assault force 162 miles uh, into Pakistan, uh, into a, a built-up area that was just a couple of miles from the Pakistani West Point, a couple of miles from a Pakistani infantry battalion, about a mile from a, uh, a police station. Oh, by the way, the Pakistanis have nuclear weapons, and they would, be, they would have been very, very happy to shoot down any helicopter coming across the border. So this was a tremendous risk on the part of the president. Uh, now, I, was, I had told the president I was confident that we could get in and get the job done. Of course, I had no idea whether bin Laden was there or not. The president called me on Saturday and said, uh, well, Bill, what do you think? I said, well, Mr. President, obviously, if he's there, we'll get him. If not, we'll come home. But the problem with the come home scenario that I had told the president in the several briefings was, look, once the SEALs get on the ground, if somebody comes out with a weapon, it is not going to go too well for them. And if the SEALs begin to clear the building and they go from the first floor and they're killing guys and they go to the second floor and the third floor and they get up to the third floor and they've killed a couple of Pakistanis on their way up and they get to the third floor and they found out that the tall guy we thought was bin Laden is nothing but a tall Pakistani, well, then this is going to be uh, a disaster of epic proportions. I didn't tell the president that, but he understood that. <laughs> right. Uh, because I had explained this to him in a number of previous meetings. And, and the fact that he still made the decision, again, I think one of the, one of the gutsier calls uh, that any president's made in, in recent history. How did you incorporate sports into a speech to your SEALs and Hello Crews shortly before their mission to nab bin Laden? So the uh, Friday night, uh, we had uh, the kind of final big briefing. And, and what we always do is, before a mission like this, uh, it's a very long, probably three-hour long brief. Uh, every member of uh, the SEALs and the Hilo Squadron uh, uh, helicopter pilots and crew, they get up and they go through, you know, sir, I'm Petty Officer so-and-so, or I'm Chief Petty Officer so-and-so, or I'm Sergeant so-and-so, or I'm Captain so-and-so. Here's, here's my job. Here's my responsibilities. Here's what's happens. Here's what's going to happen if this goes wrong. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to call. So you go through every single aspect of the mission. And when the mission was over, and, and normally when the, mission's, when the mission briefing is over, uh, the commander, myself in this case, gets up and, and says something. Um, so as I have, as we kind of completed the brief, uh, there's, you know, I mean, the, the guys understand the magnitude of the mission they're about to go on. And, and while all of the SEAL operators were combat veterans, uh, they were handpicked by the ground force commander, uh, very seasoned uh, individuals, you know, there was still, you could tell, still a little bit of concern. So I got up and, uh, and I said, uh, hey, most of you guys know that, uh, you know, I like to play basketball. And uh, there were a lot of chuckles in the audience. Every Sunday we had a pickup game in the motor pool, <laughs> and a lot of these guys had, had played ball with me. What was your strength as a basketball player? Yeah, I've to... got a hook shot. Okay. That's it. I, my, you know, my two-inch vertical leap does not help anybody. <laughs> uh, my outside shot's not particularly good, but i got a good hook shot. So uh, the, the hook, if I'm you know, within three feet of the basket, uh, <laughs> I think I can make Money it. in the bank. Money in the bank, right. Um, but so I, uh, I said, look, how many of you guys have seen the movie Hoosiers? And, of course, most of the guys had, had seen the movie Hoosiers. And, uh, but those that hadn't, I said, look, it's a story of this uh, you know, small-town basketball team in Indiana. I think it's around 1954, 1955. A true story. And so it's about these, uh, these kids that uh, from this small town go to the state championship. And so they've moved from this small town in Indiana, and now they're in Indianapolis. They're at you know, the big stadium there in Indianapolis, and these kids uh, are you know, a little bit uh, – you know, in awe of the size of the stadium and who they're going to be playing and under the big lights. And so the coach brings him in the night before the game, and, uh, and he's got the team there, and he, he turns to one of the kids and he says, hey, pace off the court. So the kid paces off the court and comes back and says, uh, coach, it's 94 feet. He says, good. He said, uh, what's the height of the basket? Gets out a tape measure and says, coach, it's 10 feet. And the uh, coach turns to the players and he says, this court, is exactly the same size as the court you play on at home. Just play your game, do your job, and you'll be fine. 
And that was my message to the guys was, look, all these guys have been on combat missions many, many times before. So just do your job. Do your job and, and we'll be fine. And, uh, and they did and we were. What was going through your head when one of your men radioed that they had, in fact, gotten bin Laden? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I've been asked that question a lot. I mean, they're, they're, I wasn't particularly, uh, you know, ecstatic or excited because we were still in Pakistan. We still had to get the guys out. Uh, and so, frankly, I didn't give it much thought. I passed on uh, the code word to uh, Director Panetta. And, in fact, I, I kind of erroneously, I just said uh, Geronimo, which was uh, the, the code word for bin Laden. I, and but I didn't, I didn't think to ask the ground force commander whether bin Laden was alive or dead because contrary to what a lot of people think, this was not a kill-only mission. Uh, we were obliged to capture bin Laden if he was absolutely, positively not a threat. Um, but in the middle of the night, uh, when it's dark, a lot of these guys wore suicide vests and uh, bin Laden made too many motions, pushed some gr- young girls in front of him. He was in you know, long pajamas, which could have been hiding a suicide vest. And so the SEALs made absolutely the right decision to, uh, uh, to kill him at that point in time. But um, but when I passed on Geronimo, I had to think for a second. I thought, ooh, I didn't ask whether he was EKIA, enemy killed in action. So I went back to the ground force commander, and uh, and he confirmed that he was enemy killed in action. So I had to go back to Panetta and say, Geronimo, EKIA. Um, but frankly, uh, I was more worried about, okay, uh, that's great that we got uh, bin Laden, but you know the clock is ticking. Uh, we know the Pakistanis are starting to figure out something's going on. Uh, I don't want to get into a fight with the, the Pakistani police, the Pakistani military, uh, so I was I was more concerned about uh, getting on with the mission and getting the guys uh, back home safely. Eventually, they did make it back safely, thankfully, and the body of Bin Laden was brought to the base that you were at. You actually had to positively ID that body and report back to President Obama. Was it difficult to ID him? Well, so uh, at some point in time, as uh, the president, you've seen the kind of the iconic photo I think taken by Pete Souza that shows the president and. Uh, Vice President, the members uh, of the National Security Team kind of crammed into that small anteroom, which was off, off to the side of the Situation Room. I believe that's in this book too, correct? It is. I think the yeah. picture's in the book. Yeah. Yep. Um, but so the the President is on a video with me, and uh, and uh, the guys were just getting ready to come over the border, back, and he says, "Well, do you know if it's Bin Laden yet?" And I said, "Sure, I don't." I said, "I need to go visually ID the body, and I'll I'll let you know." And my little command post was a couple of minutes from the airfield. So I got in a vehicle and, and drove over the airfield. About that time, the SEALs were landing. Um, they brought the, the body bag off the helicopter and, and put it down uh, in the hangar. And I, so without getting too graphic, it's, it's a rubberized body bag. And so I had to unzip the body bag. And, and, uh, and as I unzipped it, uh, again, he doesn't look too good. Uh, he's got a couple of holes in him. And, and the beard was a little bit shorter. But I was pretty certain it was Bin Laden. I mean, it, uh, it certainly... Uh, looked like him. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're about to go tell the President of the United States that this is Bin Laden. And, and in fact, one of the problems we had had, uh, not often, but every once in a while in the course of the fights in Iraq and Afghanistan is, you know, we would we would call, you know, we, we thought we had, had ID'd somebody, jackpot is the term we used, hmm. uh, only to find out later on that it wasn't the right guy. So I didn't want to go tell the President that we had Bin Laden until I was absolutely certain. So I ends up the body bag and I, I pull the remains of Bin Laden out. And I knew that bin Laden was about six foot four. I'm six two. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just kind of lie down beside him and see if he's taller than me. And I thought, well, that's probably not very dignified. So there was a, a young seal standing nearby. And I said, hey, son, how, how tall are you? And he said, well, sir, I'm, I'm six foot two. I said, good, come over here. Uh, I said, you know, lie down. And he looked at me kind of funny at first. And then, but he quickly realized what I was trying to do. So he lay down next to the remains. The remains were a couple inches taller. And uh, I said, thanks. Didn't think much of it. So I went back to the uh, to my little command post and got back on the video with the president. And he says, oh, what do you think? And I said, well, sir, really, you know, I need, I need DNA uh, to have 100%. I said, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's him. And I said, no, by the way, I had a young seal lie down next to him. And the remains were a couple inches longer. Now, it had been obviously a very serious night with a lot of serious implications. And, uh, and, but, but I offer that at this point in time, the, the president's uh, timing was perfect. He said, uh, he said, okay, Bill, let me get this straight. He said, you had $60 million for a helicopter, which was the helo that had gone down. And he said, and you didn't have $10 for a tape measure? And uh, again, a, a lighthearted moment in the midst of a very you know uh, tense evening. And it was really the right tone to strike. Uh, again, not, uh, not, not diminishing the seriousness of the, of the moment. Um, 
But uh, you know, when, I, when I got back to the States uh, a couple of days later, the, I went over to the Oval Office. The president thanked me and handed me a plaque. And on the plaque was a tape measure that said, you know, <laughs> if we got $60 million for a helicopter, we ought to have $10 for a tape measure. Next time, take the tape measure. And a picture of him handing over that plaque <laughs> and also a, a blow-up of that note is included in this book as well. It is Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations, speaking with Admiral William McRaven for a couple of more minutes. Now, you retired from the Navy a couple of years later uh, in 2014 and eventually took on a new role as Chancellor of the University of Texas System. Would you mind sharing a sea story from your time on that job? Yeah, I, I absolutely love my time as the Chancellor. And, and it's interesting, people always, uh, I was always asked the question, well, how was your transition, you know, going from the military where, where people just do what you tell them to do, uh, and then going into, you know, higher education and healthcare where you have to deal with, you know, faculty and all these sort of things. And I said, one, if you think just telling people in the military that they're going to do things, you obviously never spend a day in the military. <laughs> you know, you have to inspire them, you have to lead them, you have to manage them every once in a while. You got to kick them on the fourth point of contact. I said, but I loved the faculty. I love spending time with the students. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed my interaction with the Board of Regents and the legislature. It would get tense sometimes, but that was, uh, I mean, that was all part of the enjoyment when, you, when you're doing something you think is noble and worthwhile. Uh, you know, you fight for, for what you believe in in terms of, you know, helping the University of Texas system. So, uh, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. The, uh, the only sea stories really are, are just the opportunity that I had to work with one, the remarkable staff at the University of Texas system. I have told folks, you know, I, I spent 37 years in the military, uh, but the finest staff I ever had was when I was the chancellor at the University of Texas system. The, wow. the MDs and the PhDs and the lawyers that worked for me uh, were absolutely, you know, top-notch, gave me great advice, recognizing that I had never spent any time in higher education. I'd never done healthcare, So I had to have, you know, great talent surrounding me uh, in order for me to make the decisions that were going to move the university system forward. And I was very, very fortunate in that. I had great presidents uh, that were running the universities. Uh, you know, certainly Greg Fenves here at the University of Texas at Austin, but all around the system as well. So, uh, like I said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time, and, uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll remember it always. Honest answer. Sure. Was it tougher to hunt and capture bin Laden <laughs> or to get UT big money donors to agree on something? <laughs> you know, the uh, the, the big uh, money donors from UT actually uh, all agreed on things. They, okay. wa they wanted to make, you know, the University of Texas, uh, you know, the, the best university they could make it. That was always easy. <laughs> uh, you know, the, it was all about, you know, helping, helping people out. I will, I will offer, you know, I was often asked, uh, you know, was there anything that surprised you when you became the chancellor? And I used to tell people in the first couple months, I said, no, I'm, frankly, I'm, I'm used to working with the legislature. I worked with Capitol Hill. You know, I had, quote unquote, subordinate commanders when I was the SOCOM commander. Well, now I had presidents of universities. I said, I said, the only thing that really surprised me was philanthropy. I said, you know, nobody pays the military to name a ship. Um and I was a little jaded uh, before I really understood the importance and the character of the people that, that do such good things for the university system. I mean, you see these you know, former or, or current captains of industry, the people that really love, whether it is Austin or the Rio Grande Valley or UTEP or pick something, MD Anderson, UT Southwestern, all these great institutions, and they want to give back because, one, they realize how fortunate they have been and the fact that their money can go a long way towards educating kids or curing cancer, something that they are passionate about. And you realize that without this philanthropy, uh, we would not be a great university system. So, uh, again, I'd always been a little bit jaded thinking that uh, there was probably some ulterior tax motive for it. And, of course, that's not it at all. Mm. This is people that really want to help, uh, that want to leave their legacy on the university system, and, uh, and God bless them for the, the remarkable work they do and the, and the support they provide the university. If there is one lesson that you could impart to people from your journey, what would that be? I, I would offer that it's about being a servant leader. Um, what you learn in leadership very early on in the military, from the time I was actually a midshipman, I would say, here at the University of Texas, but all the way through my time, uh, as uh, a four-star in my time as the chancellor of the University of Texas system, it's never about you. If it becomes mm. about you, then you're probably not the leader that the people need. It's got to be about the mission. 
It's got to be about taking care of the people that work for you, about providing them the resources, you know, setting high standards, providing the resources, and hold people accountable. Because nobody wants to be part of a mediocre organization. And the only way you can be part of a great organization is by establishing high standards, giving people the resources they need, and then holding people accountable when they don't rise to the standards. You don't have to be mean-spirited about it. But if you want to be a great organization, those are the things you have to do. But you can't make it about you. I mean, your job is to inspire, to manage, to motivate, to provide, and then let the people do the job that you hired them to do. That is fantastic life advice and fantastic leadership advice as well. Thank you very much for that. And I wanted to end on this one. Your wife, Georgianne, is somebody who has been brought up in this conversation several times. She makes repeated appearances throughout the book, See Stories. How important is she to you? Yeah. Oh, she's everything. Uh, I, I tell in my, my final chapter, which is called The Final Salute, uh, it is about my retirement ceremony. And, uh, and, and the point I make to the reader is that, you know, the one single most important decision in my life was that I was smart enough to marry Georgianne or, you know, yeah, I was smart enough to marry her because everything that has come since then has been a result of her support for me, her friendship for me, uh, her love for me, her ability to kind of pick me up and dust me off when I stumbled and fell, um, Nothing I have achieved, absolutely nothing I have achieved, uh, was was without her by my side. Um, and and I think folks that have been married a long time, who have great partners, who have great friends, uh, understand the the importance of those relationships. And uh, and certainly, this is the most important relationship I had in my life. He is Admiral William McRaven. The new book is Sea Stories, My Life and Special Operations. Please go out and get this book. It is fantastic. I know this has been a widely encompassing conversation. We barely scratched the surface of everything talked about in this book. Even some of the stories that have been told, there are plenty more details to share. Admiral McRaven, thank you so much, sir. It's been yeah. an honor speaking with you today. Thanks. My, my pleasure.